Marua, a bustling regional capital set in the dry and dusty plains of northeast Cameroon, a couple of hours' drive from the border with the restive Nigerian state Borno. Motorbike taxis dominate here, outnumbering cars ten times over. They ferry people around this city of around half a million people. Many who live here have been through the most traumatic experiences, having been forced to flee villages close to the border, which have been attacked by terrorists aligned to Boko Haram or other groups. How do we get these women or any victim to recover and rebuild their lives? And that's, of course, much more complicated because it requires a lot of longer-term assistance. I'm Daniel Dickinson, and in this special UN News The Lid Is On podcast from Cameroon, I'll be looking at what can be done for people who have suffered at the hands of violent extremists. People who, through no fault of their own, have lost everything and who now need to somehow restart their lives. It's noon and the hottest time of the day in Marua, but trees provide comforting shade at this outdoor workshop, a couple of blocks from the main thoroughfare of this city. One man and four women in brightly coloured robes sit in a circle on the floor, working diligently stitching leather sandals. The leather has been cured from slaughtered animals and the soles are made from discarded vehicle tyres. Aminatu Sali is one of the women. In June, two years ago, she was forced to flee her home in the town of Mora, an hour to the north of Marua, after it was attacked by Boko Haram. There was fighting, but I didn't realize. I was frying bread at the time. My husband had gone to work, and he was killed there. The local chief came by my house and told me that I had to flee with the children. That day, I was so scared. I had never felt fear like this before. I don't know how to explain it. I didn't eat. I had no strength. I was overwhelmed by the situation. Aminatu Sali's home was burnt to the ground. In the panic surrounding that attack, she lost everything. She still doesn't know what happened to her husband, whose body she has never seen. She now makes up to two pairs of sandals each week and sells vegetables on a small stand outside the workshop to make ends meet. These are her only sources of income, so she's pleased to have received the training. I like working for IDP Goods because I would like to get more training and then maybe have the strength to raise my children. My husband died two years ago and it's only now that I'm beginning a new life with my five children. Aminatu Sali is just one of around 250,000 people who have fled terrorist attacks in northeast Cameroon. In the vernacular of the UN, she's known as an internally displaced person, or IDP. But it's not just Cameroonians who are affected by terrorist groups like Boko Haram. As I spoke to her, some 250 kilometres north, tens of thousands of people were pouring across the border from the Nigerian town of Ran, just a few miles away into the village of Gura in Cameroon, following renewed attacks by terrorists. 
This is the sound of people on the move, a humanitarian displacement crisis in real time. These people are arriving with small carts pulled by donkeys. Today, there was a lull in attacks, and many have taken the opportunity to return, albeit briefly, to their homes in Nigeria. They've managed to salvage a few possessions from their now looted and burnt homes. Mattresses, sacks of grain and pots and pans, but not a lot more, are brought by the most fortunate. This is the front line of a man-made crisis created by terrorism. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, is leading relief efforts. My name is Geert van der Kastelen. I'm the Assistant Representative UNHCR for Cameroon. We have been here only for, let's say, half an hour. What I have seen is that, of course, people coming, bringing a lot of belongings with them. People, one thing that's very clear, that, as you know, Iran has been attacked, uh, I think, since September last year for four times. So the, the people this time, they are not willing to go back immediately. And uh, yes, I think this is, this is a way of being desperate. They told us that they don't want to go back, they don't feel secure. But also a lot of humanitarians on the field, very motivated. And already after a couple of days, I think they have managed and did a great job by, by, by installing things. Huh? So we have still a lot of challenges, but we bring in more people. And uh, just to show you, I mean, my colleagues have been able in a very quick time to make a calculation. And I can tell you within the coming three months for the emergency, we will need approximately, let's say, uh, between 10 and 11 million dollars. UN humanitarian agencies are providing for the immediate needs of these displaced people. Shelter, food, water, health care. For now, these people remain the destitute victims of the terrorist insurgency. Back at the workshop in Marua, Aminatu Sali is completing another pair of sandals. They're brightly coloured, neatly stitched and generally well-finished. They'll be sent for sale at shops in Yaoundé and the commercial capital Douala, where they'll fetch up to seven US dollars each. She'll also sell her goods locally, and it's hoped eventually overseas. The Cameroonian man behind this venture is Charlie Wanji. He set up the NGO IDP Goods in Yaoundé in 2016, to provide jobs to people who had been displaced by groups like Boko Haram. So far, 150 people have been trained in the manufacture and marketing of the sandals and other artisanal goods. The group has also crucially been focusing on preventing the radicalisation of impoverished people who see joining the terrorist group as the only escape from poverty. We decided to establish IDP goods after the violent extremism in the final region of Cameroon terrorist attack, we had a lot of Cameroonians that were actually displaced. We decided to try to find a solution to that problem. And we thought one of the main reasons why we have youth radicalizations is poverty, because poor people are vulnerable. So that's why we decided to create an association that can remedy that uh, problem by providing income-generating activities to internally displaced Cameroonians in order to make them to be more independent. And we thought that would be a good way to reduce their vulnerability to radicalization. Unemployment is a problem everywhere. Why did you prioritize displaced people? The reality, first of all, in the region, in the final region of Cameroon, we are actually talking of extreme 
poverty. Many of the youth that were radicalized for financial reasons, you know, they had to hire many youths to come join the movement of Boko Haram. So we thought one alternative is to provide an alternative income solution for the youth, and that is the best way you can help prevent their radicalization. And someone who works for IDP Goods, are they making a living from producing the goods? Yeah, sure. So the IDPs will produce goods through IDP Goods Project. The goods they make is theirs. The people who have been through the IDP Goods training program and who are now selling, what changes have you seen in their, in their mentality, in their outlook on life? The major change I saw, I saw an entrepreneurial business kind of spirit in them. And it was so interesting afterwards, towards the end of the project, to realise that they had clients they supplied. The prevention of violent extremism is central to the work of IDP Goods. It's also a narrative you hear regularly from the Cameroonian government, civil society and the international community. If you explain to vulnerable people the dangers of joining a violent and extremist insurgency like Boko Haram and provide them with an alternative to a life of poverty, education, a job, security and access to health services, then the argument goes they're less likely to become a terrorist, pick up a gun and start killing innocent people. IDP Goods has trained around 10,000 young people on the issue of preventing violent extremism. It's published a cartoon book which focuses on three youths who have chosen very different life paths. Musa has finished his studies and has become an engineer. Fatima gave up school and is now living an aimless life. And Adamu has taken a more violent path. Musa decided to go to school and those uh, Adamu and uh, Fatima were his friends. But these friends, at a certain stage, Fatima decided to drop out of school and then uh, the other man, Adamu, also dropped out of school. But Musa continued his education. At the end of the day, he became an engineer. While Fatima got lost, as any other youth in the far north region where you find people start going to school at, the, at a certain stage, they drop out of school, especially women. They are so vulnerable in the far north region. So Fatima, at the end of the story, stayed in the village doing nothing. She never completed her education. Adamo, after dropping out of school, decided to go the fast way by joining the bad gangs. After joining the bad gang, he was terrorizing the village, having a lot of issues with the village. But at the end of the story, his leg was amputated and he could not do anything and he was regretting. He was full of regret at the end of the story. So briefly, that's what uh, is found in the manual. Balkisu Buba is the training facilitator at IDP Goods. The message we are giving in the manual is take education seriously. Don't joke with education because education is the key. The youth today, they are the future of tomorrow. They are the leaders of tomorrow, and we have to build them from today. If we don't build them from today, then we are already looking at a bleak future. But if these youth, they go to school, they are educated, they have good morals, they, they grow up well, they are the future of the society. They are the tomorrow and they are the bright future we have been looking at. They are the change we have been waiting for. So we need this change, and we have to start uh, implanting this change in the younger generation. So that is why we want them to avoid radicalization. To avoid everything that is bad for them, they should go to school, be educated, be better citizens in the society, and live a good life for the, for the for nation building. You've trained about 
10,000 people with this uh, cartoon manual. What's been their reaction? The reaction we have gotten so far is very positive because we started training with this manual in secondary schools where we go to each school. We have about 300 students we train in every school. We train them, we talk about the CVE trainings, we talk about the, what is countered violent extremism, we talk about notion of peace, we talk about social cohesion, we talk about living together. So in secondary schools we were distributing the booklet, when people come, they go and read the book, then they come and tell the story to their parents, even back at home. When you ask them at the end of the training, how do they say, no, we want to become like Musa. Do you think you've made a difference? We made a difference in this cartoon manual. Because now, even the younger ones in the quarter, they already know something about countering violent extremism. From the teachings and the trainings we have trained them, they know how they can easily identify somebody when he is like a suspicious somebody. They know immediately what are some of the precautionary procedures they can take to like report something that is suspicious in the quarters. They already know what to do, some measures that they can take to prevent violence. So many of the children became ambassadors of peace. So the impact is really huge. And most of the children who were thinking of uh, like when they would grow big after seeing all the violence that they have gone through, they would like revenge. But with this manual, after learning so much on it, they decided that no, there is a power in forgiveness. This, all this hatred is gradually coming out of them like a tool, like a therapy for them. The children is like therapy to them, we use it like psychotherapy because when these internally displaced children, they come, they are abandoned to themselves. Okay. Most of people look at low, let's give them food, let's give them shelter, but they forget about the trauma that these children are having. So we decided to use this manual to give them a healing to come out of that trauma. Cameroon is one of four countries affected by Boko Haram and other terrorist factions in the region. Chad, Niger and Nigeria have all been affected by the brutality and chaos wrought by groups of ruthless and violent extremists. The insurgency began in Nigeria over a decade ago with the aim of creating an Islamic caliphate in the northeast of the country. It gathered pace as many disenfranchised youths joined the ranks of Boko Haram and other groups as a way out of poverty. Regional governments and international organisations like the United Nations continue to grapple with how best to counter the appeal of extremism, recognising that boosting security and sustainable development need to be part of the solution. The United Nations is working on the ground towards finding the most appropriate answers to the difficult questions posed by the terrorist insurgency. Allegra Bayochi is the resident coordinator in Cameroon, the UN's top official in the country. Cameroon is one of the four countries affected by the Boko Haram insurgency and it has a huge impact on one specific region in the extreme north, which is by the way the most populous region and the poorest region of the country. And we are now talking about 100,000 refugees, 250,000 people have been displaced, Cameroonians, and of course the host communities. The kind of victims we've seen, because we've seen victims of direct attacks, I mean obviously a lot of civilian casualties, but also the injured who, left, who are left behind in a region that has very poor health care. 
but it's also the impact of villages being burned, health centers, schools, as you know, Boko Haram at the beginning uh, specifically targeted schools, which obviously had not only an immediate impact on those children going to school, but a future impact on the ability uh, to educate uh, that region. Uh, so I think it's important to think that we're not only looking at individual victims who have maybe first-hand experience, but the impact that it has on a whole region and actually on a whole country. And, uh, and I think what's most unfortunate, it's gone well beyond the armed insurgents and the combatants because Boko Haram has also a lot of women and children that were either kidnapped or had to follow and became associated to the movement. And so today we're not only grappling with the civilian population in more humanitarian terms, but also with some of these people who have left the movement or were able to run away. I think we look at the scope you know, of action. So of course there's the humanitarian, the immediate life saving. So then that's for the displaced, for the refugees, for the populations who have just been under attack. We would try and reach them with immediate life saving. And when it comes to the women and the children, it, it obviously tries to include psychosocial support, access to health in terms of any sexual health needs they may have, which is very important, but often forgotten, you know, when we look at funding for these kind of actions. There always tends to be funding for the food needs, uh, but when it comes to the bigger protection needs, which are at the core of, the, of this situation, there tends to be less understanding of how important they are. But I think humanitarian needs to only be the first step and what it really needs is how do we get these women or any victim you know, to recover and rebuild their lives. And that's of course much more complicated because it requires a lot of longer term assistance uh, and it uh, can go through. And so some of the things we've been looking at is uh, training of course, uh, social cohesion, working within uh, communities to see how we can reintegrate uh, the victims into their societies, but also going back and filling some of those gaps, especially in terms of education. So we have a lot of support to uh, children and young girls going back to school and a lot of training uh, colleges that have been supported through some of the work of the UN and some of the work of our donors, which would help give them uh, op economic opportunities because some of their um, strength and independence must also come through the economic opportunities. But their stories again are very much about abuse and abuse that started well before Boko Haram came onto the scene. The abuse starts as young girls and I was recently in Marwan talking to several girls who had been affected by sexual and gender-based violence and uh, some of the victims, some of those who were eventually victims of Boko Haram were earlier victims within their families, you know, whether it was early marriage or again the prohibition of going to school and being uh, forced uh, to work. So again, I think it's all about education, as we know, girls' education has to be a core priority, uh, but it's also about giving opportunities. Then I think there's the work uh, that we call prevention of violence extremism which um, is increasingly supported, I think also with government. It looks at how do we avoid further radicalization or as we say de-radicalize some of the elements that are present. But I think what's interesting for the Boko Haram situation or for the Lake Chad region, unlike probably other contexts, is that when we've asked people why did you join the movement and we have asked, their answer was less of an ideological one 
but more of an economical. It was about economic opportunities, which in itself has the answer to what we need to be doing for these people. We need to give them alternatives. Uh, we need to give alternatives to the youth in terms of employment and opportunities of, of a real life, which will make them avoid the, these kind of choices. How did you feel meeting those women? So I've had the privilege and the opportunities to meet many of these victims uh, of terror. And every time their stories are incredible. Uh, and I'm saying you always come out feeling heartbroken. But at the same time, their stories are of survival. And we, you know, when we say victim, we actually need to say survivor. And, and their resilience is incredible. And we spent a day with several young girls who had been victim of sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, people who were married off at 11, 12 years old, repeatedly raped. A young girl who had lost four children to illness because the husband would not allow her to, to pay for medicines. And meeting them today, you would think you know, this would be a broken woman, but not at all. These are women who, through some of the help they received, including through some of the very active uh, NGOs we have on the ground, see a future full of hope. And one of the sentences that really stayed with me was of a young girl who had a baby on her back who said, um, my life mission is to make sure this doesn't happen to my daughter. And so I think it's this idea of breaking the cycle of violence. And yes, we've been victims, but we've survived. And what we now need to make sure is that it won't happen again. And I think that's why we always leave hopeful, but also renewed in our commitment to help them. Allegra Bayocci, the UN resident coordinator in Cameroon. In Marua and many of the smaller towns and villages that have been attacked or otherwise affected by armed insurgencies, the path to recovery is underway, even if those steps are small and gradual ones, literally taken by producing one sandal at a time in the case of IDP goods. As Boko Haram and other terrorist groups continue to threaten communities in the north of Cameroon and neighbouring countries, it's likely that many other interventions, which are aimed at de-radicalisation and recovery, will be needed. This is Daniel Dickinson in Marua, in the far north region of Cameroon, ending this edition of the Lid Is On podcast from UN News.